0: 2 Corinthians 1, we'll be reading verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We are continuing our early trek through the exciting first chapter of Second Corinthians this morning. And as always, before we Embark on our journey of grace and faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, now anoint your church with the blessing of the Holy Spirit as He applies Jesus to our hearts that we might see in the face of Christ the image, the express image of God, and through Him know you in the way, the only way that pleases you. And in this beholding of Christ, may we be built up in our most holy faith to be more conformed into that image as the church, the bride of Christ. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think there is any other place in Pauline epistolary literature where the great minister expresses more angst and anguish than he does in verses 8 through 10 of our scripture lesson for today. The great apostle and all regenerate church members in every age have understood that nothing can be a greater burden than sin and its accompanying curse, judgment, and condemnation. Now by that statement I am not supposing that Paul is necessarily primarily referring to his own personal sin though in a subordinate sense he may be but he was certainly cognizant of the issue and the fact of sin and its opposition to Jesus, the gospel, the church and the work he was doing in the first century new covenant age in which he wrote these words. The only rectification for the sin problem for anyone is blood atonement, but it must be of a perfect God-man, the God-man Jesus Christ, the one mediator between sinful humans and the holy God, 1 Timothy 2, five. That is the only rectification, and once we have, by God's grace, received that, we then share in the resurrection joy of justification before God In Jesus Christ. Therefore, the title for our sermon today is certainly eminently appropriate. In light of that, let us make it our goal on this resurrection day to come to God through Jesus Christ in all our afflictions, looking together at 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. If you'd like to use the outline, it's provided, and we start here. The title of the sermon, Death and Resurrection in Jesus, First the Doctrine, The ministry of the church fully strains the poles of endurance and rescue. Much of today's scripture lesson is about ministry, even the church's formal ministry, But because that's the case, it doesn't mean it's limited to the ministry of all the faithful parishioners in every congregation of true and faithful churches in all history, including all of you men, women, boys, and girls who are faithful in Jesus in the covenant community as you minister in and through the church at your own congregation, but through her to the world as well. Tension and stress is part of life for every fallen human being in this sin-cursed world that Jesus Christ has now conquered through his resurrection and is now making into the new heavens and new earth that is being developed even now in the life of the church through the great work of Jesus Christ sharing the gospel around the world and the church expanding into every place. But tension and stress is certainly a big part of it. And when it comes to the ministry of the gospel, through the saints of God, it certainly takes on an exponentially larger proportion and dimension. Therefore, let us seek to better understand that the ministry of the church fully strains the poles of endurance and rescue. First, affliction is analogous to death. Now, we talked about affliction last Sunday in the earlier verses from 2 Corinthians 1. A little bit, and we defined affliction in some form as that cold clammy presence of our mortal but now crushed head Satan enemy that Jesus Christ has conquered and yet he shows up to trouble us from time to time and as often as he possibly can. Now the Apostle Paul and his ministerial comrades came face to face with this monster in Asia according to verse 8a. And this seems to be an experience that the Apostle would never get over and probably wished he could forget. The worst sense of death is the sense of sin. That is the worst part of the death equation. Not hell, not even condemnation, but sin is the real problem. And if this problem is not dealt with, it leads to the heart's most nightmarish horrors. Ironically, only the true redeemed sinner saints that make up the church of God ever actually experience this angst and anguish because sinners lost in death and hell and damnation and condemnation don't feel anything. They're insensate. According to Ephesians 2, 1, they are dead in trespasses and sins. So dead people don't feel anything. But living people, real saints, really do. And that's why you suffer more than the reprobate or those who are yet outside of Jesus Christ. You who are truly lovers of God, you will suffer more, but you will also have the glory in the world to come and in this world. Once by renewed faith, we believe again that Jesus has taken on himself all our sins and totally removed from us all the condemnation, damnation, guilt, and shame of them, having taken them on himself. Then we enjoy the greatest possible pleasures and graces in this world, in Jesus Christ's resurrection. And for us, that's basically heaven on earth because Jesus Christ himself is heaven. He is the end of all things. He is the one to whom everything is coming, is being subjected to, created through. Jesus Christ is the end of all things. And we enjoy him here today. This naturally leads to our next point. Affliction is analogous to death and deliverance is analogous to resurrection Oh, the blessed resurrection of Jesus. We're celebrating that today, the resurrection day. An hour being raised with him in our first resurrections of our soul's regeneration, the first resurrection, Revelation 20 verse 6, the, the fact that we have already experienced the first of these two great resurrections. And now we enjoy that wonderful continuing effect of that first resurrection right through this world, even into the last day on that day, the judgment day, when all bodies, corporal bodies, these bodies of ours will also be raised, either unto glory or unto eternal damnation. And so even now, this spirit of praise that we see in today's text Paul comes out of the grave of despair and desperation and raises his heart, his hands, his voice in jubilant offering of triumphant praise to God for what he had done, how he had delivered him. He would deliver him. He has delivered him. He will deliver him in the future. And that is the same promise we have, that God in Christ Jesus will deliver us his church. This praise is often spoken of in the Psalms, as for instance, David's words taken from Psalm 18, verses 46 to 48. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. Life down here, dears, is tough and difficult, sometimes extremely difficult. We're seeing that in today's text with the Apostle Paul. And any of us who have been in Christ and truly in Him, in the church for much time, have experienced some level of this. But in Christ we have a certain hope, that we experience anew and afresh in Him, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, this glorious raising together with Him, into heaven where we're seated with him, reigning with him, ruling with him, even now as the bride of Christ. Let's look at these amazing verses 8 through 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and be convinced why sin and forgiveness are always the heart of every matter. You know, no matter what Paul is actually specifically talking about in verses 8 to 10, which I suppose no one knows for sure, this much we are certain That at the root of everything are the issues of sin slash guilt and forgiveness slash redemption. All of our problems, all the problems of the world, all the problems of every rational creature, human or angelic, is encompassed in the heart standing before the perfect bar of God's eternal and absolute justice. That's a problem. And that's why everybody you know is seeking to deal with it. And if they aren't doing it in Jesus, they cannot find the answer. Thank God that in Christ, his blood atonement, The church's true saints need not fear the fact of why sin and forgiveness are always the heart of every matter. First, because sin is behind all of our struggles, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Wow, that's just an amazing verse in itself. Now, I do not mean to imply in the verse or in our doctrinal statement that is encapsulating the verse that our own personal sin is always the immediate cause of all our trials and troubles, though when it is, it is especially harrowing. And that's where we really need to always start is with our own hearts rather than out there with someone else. In this verse 8, frankly, I don't think Paul is referring to his own personal iniquity, but undoubtedly the curse of sin was the driving force behind the apostles' almost unbearable torment and agony. Now, whose sin it was, was not as pertinent to Paul's words as the fact that he and his ministerial companions in the deepest parts of their souls had in God's sovereign providence to bear the burden, the ministerial Burden the gospel burden, the church burden, of whatever it was that was going on in Asia here in verse 8. Trust me when I tell you that a faithful ministry is strenuous and it taxes the soul and stretches the heart almost to the breaking point. Do we sense the nearly unbearable grief in Paul's heart in these words of verse 8b? We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And Paul wanted the Corinthian church and us all the way down here in 2023 to, quote, not be unaware of this sorrow, verse 8a. So it was important to him that it got inscripturated. Why sin and forgiveness are always the heart of every matter. Because sin is behind all of our struggles, and because grace assures us of our complete forgiveness. Verses 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, is this in reference to mortal death, being murdered by murderers who are always trying to assassinate the Apostle Paul? Probably in a subordinate way, but to him I think that was fairly small potatoes. He was just used to that. He just knew that Satan would always try to murder him. I think it's deeper than that. I think it goes to something more profound. When Paul writes about these undercurrents, he may have something much more specific and unknown to us in mind, but he knows that at the core of everything in a fallen and moral universe is the dynamic of guilt and the possibility of the remission of sins. In other words, the whole need for and preaching of the gospel that the church brings to the world. The world seeks then to heap up on the true saints all kinds of guilt and condemnation and damnation, and the assurance of our sins being forgiven in Jesus' blood becomes for us nothing less than heaven on earth. I think in the most profound sense that what Paul has in mind here in verses 9 and 10 is regarding the issue of sin, guilt, God, damnation, judgment the things that drive human beings to distraction, that absolutely make them go crazy in a certain sense, in the sense that they simply can't handle it. And that makes sense. There's so much on the line. Life is so serious. Human beings are created in the image of God, and many of them go to hell. And many of them are elect out there, and we don't even know it. And our role and our privilege is simply to broadcast this gospel to everyone. And God will call his own unto himself. Now, is Paul the minister thinking about other spiritual circumstances, about persecutors, other evildoers, heretics? Heretics were a real big, probably the biggest problem. As I think about this, even standing here, I'm wondering if maybe it was heresy that Paul was really tangling with in Asia. Satan's way of using heretics and heresy and introducing false teaching into the true church to try to lead the lambs astray into some other gospel, some other way. I suspect it is. At the end of the day, all this stress, really all the effort of Satan to destroy him, to discourage him, to dispirit him, to make him try to give up, only had the effect of Paul saying, oh, now I realize I must not rely on myself but on God who raises the dead, on the one God who will, has, and always has delivered me from death. God himself uses this to test our faith, to see if we are elect in Christ Jesus, to see if we will persevere and endure or will give up, like most people do, with a little trouble. This is why Paul's amazing statement in verse 9, that all of this was to, quote, make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead is so significant, poignant, and applicable even to us. And then verse 10's thrice-repeated deliverance expression reminds us of who has, is, and will release us from the jaws of death in this world. And that one is the risen Lord Jesus Christ in whom and with whom we are raised even today. Why, sin and forgiveness are always the heart of every matter, because sin is behind all of our struggles. Grace assures us of our complete forgiveness. And finally, because fellowship binds us together in love, verse 11. You know, a little later today, we're going, Lord willing, to enjoy a magnificent fellowship meal, a love feast, to put in a New Testament language, and listen to these words, where Paul writes, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The fellowship of the saints. You know, Paul is asking the Corinthian church for prayer support to the end that he and the other ministers of the gospel would indeed experience the future deliverance that Paul had just spoken of in verse 10. Asking the church, the saints, to pray that these ministers would be delivered, that all faithful ministers and the church under their charges would be delivered from Satan. Then as a thank offering, as it were, the whole church everywhere would praise God for his God's preservation of Christ's sacred ministry. How important is the ministry from generation to generation? Once you don't have a ministry, you don't have a church, and once you don't have a church, the world has nothing. And what has happened in the worst times of church history? Darkness and death and law and works and religion that has no life in it because there's no Christ in it. A lot of times people rightly and understandably ask for prayer from other saints for a lot of things. (laughs) Just this week I heard of a prayer request and I'm not being too hard on it, I'm just saying. Somebody asking that that they would make the right choice of clothes what to take on a trip or something like that I see your bewildered puzzled look I will say though I think we can ask for prayer but isn't it true that the greatest and most necessary prayers are for the ministry of the church the preaching of the free grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ in faithful churches That God would raise up faithful ministers from generation to generation so that the saints actually hear some gospel and aren't given a bunch of drivel in the world's false religions that say everybody's good, there's no such thing as sin, don't worry, God's a nice guy, everybody goes to heaven. And they tell them a whole bunch of other lies too. We need the ministry. The church has to have it. And Paul is asking the saints who weren't necessarily known as the most stellar and stable in the world in the first century, the Corinthian church, to pray for him. And he had enough confidence in God's grace working in and through them that indeed they would do that, which is really beautiful. Prayer to God the Father. By the way, you want to learn how to pray, here's how you do it. God the Father is the proper object of our prayers. We pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no prayer heard by the true God ever in the history of the world, even way back in the Garden of Eden, that wasn't offered through the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ the Lord. Any prayer not offered to God through Christ, God doesn't hear. It's an idolatrous utterance anyway, and it means nothing. That's how you pray, and that's how we honor God. And this is the spiritual glue the Lord uses to cement us to each other as we are united to the church's head, Jesus Christ our King, even here. Remember the three means, principal, ordinary means of grace, preaching, sacraments, prayer. Let all our hope be set on the rock, the church's one and only foundation, the rock, Jesus Christ himself. And may we take great comfort in him. Let's do a little more application this morning. And know what churchmen are to believe when confronted with fearful specters. Notice I mentioned churchmen here. Not talking about lone ranger, proud, arrogant. Christians that are too good for the church, that don't need the church, that look down their noses at the church, that think they can partake of the church's blessings without being under the discipline of God in the church. We're going to talk about that at the table. But I'm talking about real Christians who are sinner saints who struggle, who know themselves to be needy. You behold sometimes some of the most dreadful menaces to your hearts and souls relative to the reality and remission of sins, and these are sure to show themselves to you in this fallen world. The only real question, think about this, the the sins of your heart and your past, whatever it might be, are confronting you now. And the only question is, who and what do I believe in the face of them? Well, here are the options. Most people say, oh, it's okay, I'm better than the other guy. I compare myself to this guy, and compared to him, I'm fine. That person is is hell-bound. Another person may simply say, I'm okay because I do enough things. I'm very active. I'm a law, righteousness person. God will accept me because I do a lot of good things. That person is bound for hell. Another may even more stupidly say, oh, I just deny the reality of sin altogether. I just pretend it doesn't exist. Well, there's no hope for a person like that. Because the gospel is sent to sinners, not good people who don't need it. It's sent to real blood and gut sinners who really do need it. They're the only ones who ever get the comfort or the benefit of the gospel. So, on the other hand, if our reaction is, when we behold our sins, one of self-undoing and Christ-exaltation, then this is evidence of true regeneration in Jesus Christ. Now, let us understand what redeemed churchmen are to believe when confronted with fearful specters. First, that Christ has borne away all our sins, B-O-R-N-E, taken away. When Satan and his demonic and human agents come before you, even this week, to condemn you, to remind you of your sins, and to seek to drive you to despair, remind them and yourself that your Lord Jesus already died for your sins. He has borne the penalty and paid the price for them. He has taken them away from you. You heard that in the absolution earlier. In your regenerations, the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness was placed on you. you were clothed with Christ, you were baptized into Christ, and it's put to your account, and your sins are taken and put on him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the one who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. second Corinthians 521. This forgiveness of sins is absolute. You ever wonder why the church is passionate about the gospel? Because that's what we're about. And the forgiveness of sins involves everything. We are to live this free, full life. Nothing is left out. Now, will Satan and sinners continue to try to hammer us with accusations concerning our sins? Yes, But we may boldly say to them that Christ, the Lamb of God, has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. The sensitive soul is the vulnerable soul, but the forgiven heart is also the most God-loving heart. And we already have proved that the unregenerate don't feel anything because they're dead in trespasses and sins so if you have a contrite sensitive heart a forgiven heart then you are in a good place on a good day in Jesus Christ we have the one we must have and the one who has overcome the world for us John sixteen thirty three, and overcome our sins for us John 1930 What redeemed churchmen are to believe when confronted with fearful specters that Christ has borne away all our sins and that we are free risen and justified before the holy God all in Jesus after death i.e. humiliation repentance comes resurrection i.e. life joy strength and assurance And when this happens, our hearts burst with exaltation and joy and pleasure at the glorious liberty we possess now in Jesus Christ. And that's what you should be able to do even now. This is when we recognize that all the judgment of the world against us, all the condemnation of our own hearts against us, even all the otherwise justice of God's own law against us, has all been satisfied in Jesus Christ's blood atonement, and in this point in particular, our sharing in his resurrection from the dead, being crowned now and justified, risen, reigning with him. The gospel is a magnificent message. You can see why Satan hates it so much, and why the world tries to block it and come up with alternatives. It is a powerful message. When people can understand in the deepest parts of their souls that their sins are forgiven, that God is not holding them against them, this is glory indeed. But this gospel message, as great as it is, dears, here's the mystery of it. And again, we trust the sovereign God, don't we? We believe God's sovereign. Gospel is only heard by and appreciated by human beings who know themselves to be real sinners. Who aren't making excuses, aren't comparing themselves with others, aren't finding any other way. Recognize they're undone, hopelessly lost, condemned. That's the group that hears and appreciates the gospel. These are the people who get God's comfort. These are the souls who experience Christ's relief. These are the ones who are sealed by the blessed Holy Spirit and adopted into Christ's real church. What do you want today? If you desire Jesus and all the grace that comes with him, Forgiveness of sins, you may have him. How? By faith. Beloved, death and resurrection in Jesus is the warp and woo for the gospel itself. By gracious and sovereignly given faith in Christ, let us always experience death and resurrection in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel and for these angst-filled words of the Apostle Paul as he wrestled with Satan, heretics, sin, whatever it was. Thank you that you delivered him through it, and he left this amazing testimony of your grace. We all understand to some extent what he went through if we're in Christ Jesus. We thank you in his holy name that you deliver us completely in this blessed Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen.